Yeah, it's weird when you see firsthand, like your friends or family, like how money affects them once they get a taste. Oh, you know? yeah. Everyone's liberal till they get rich, right? Yeah. <laughs> then they become socially liberal, fiscally conservative. <laughs> morning I had a terrible argument with myself, but the makeup sex was incredible. <laughs> Every set before I go on stage, I say, Jesus, allow me to reflect your light, conduct your warmth, and radiate your joy to this crowd. That takes me out of me and into service. I love those audiences, especially the girls. Johnny Dark, the great Johnny Dark, had the funniest line when he performed in Korea. He said he accidentally got in front of a crowd of Koreans who didn't speak any English except for three words. You not funny. <laughs> the great Johnny Dark. <laughs> Make it loud for Argus Hamilton. Here with the legendary comedian, uh, one of the OGs of the comedy store, and uh, a guy who I'm very lucky to call my friend. Here on the podcast, please welcome the great Argus Hamilton. Argus, Argus Hamilton to the show. Thank you, Jeremiah. Great to be here in Las Vegas. I know. It's so cool that uh, we get to work together in Las Vegas. We're always at the comedy store together. So, Do you gamble? Uh, I did last night. Really? Yeah. I turned... Uh, a $20 bill and to $248 in the slot machines. Really? Yeah. I got super lucky last night. Did you leave with it? Yeah, I left with it. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah. I uh, It was up around 300 I, and then I, I kept it going a little bit, and I was like, my caps, if I get down to 250 I'm pulling it out, right, and right. that's what I did. Wow. Yeah. Well, the last time, it was like in the summer of 2020, uh -huh. during the George Floyd protests, mm -hmm. I was at the comedy store when the protest came walking down Sunset Boulevard past the comedy store. And in solidarity with six black comics at the comedy store, I, I knelt, took a knee, mm -hmm. until I rolled five straight sevens and then they ran me off. <laughs> <laughs> you always get me with your Mr. X. I, I always am believing you with your stories and then it turns into a great... Punchline with a joke. I love that. That's why we're here. I know. I know. You know people don't pay $25 to hear how sincere I am. You know? <laughs> That's very true. That's very, very true. Well, yeah, it's uh, you're one of those guys that, um, uh, and this is a, is a compliment to you, uh, when you have to when you have to follow somebody like you at the comedy store, it's work. And that's a good, you know, that, that's a compliment. Like I it, don't really understand why they still have me going on second now. I, I'm serious. Yeah. Because... Ever since the pandemic, I've connected with millennials and even some Generation Z. I really connect with millennials. Yeah. And it's the same way we baby boomers connected with Rodney Dangerfield in the 80s. Sure. Okay? He was I'm your their, guy. I'm their naughty uncle, Lord Hamilton. And I, I teach them how to raise hell as long as they can before they have to get well. It's crazy 
the impact on the crowd like in those main rooms yeah like what i how hard i see you killing like i'm in the back sometimes pacing i'm like all right uh, <laughs> and then uh i'm fortunate uh to bring you up uh i prefer that <laughs> yeah, yeah sure bringing you up then yeah. i have to follow you but yeah well i used to have to follow you from time to time in the original room yes and when you would get down on on your stomach and do this bit about sex <laughs> no one could follow it and I think you stopped doing it just to be nice to the other comedians. <laughs> I mean, because it was murder. Yeah, it was, um, it was, uh, the bit was, uh, uh, how, uh, women turn into like werewolf like creatures around karaoke and how, uh, you can take them to bed afterwards. And it was basically me acting like a woman, uh, getting sexed in many different positions. Uh-huh. Uh, and yeah, it was pretty, uh, like pretty much every Kama Sutra position <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> in the book. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, it's, yeah, I've been wanting to have you, uh, on the podcast for a while. So I was glad that it, uh, it worked out because you're one of those guys who, you came up and you know everybody in the game, like at the comedy store. You're you're one of the uh, original people who helped, like Mitzi, like kind of like open it up with like the the lineups and stuff. Uh, as far as like the comedy store, the Westwood Comedy Store. You talked about the Dunes here in Vegas, and I kind of wanted to to pick your brain and and have you share some stories about well, uh, over the years. Mitzi uh, and her husband Sammy were extraordinarily lucky because they opened this room on the Sunset Strip, the Comedy Store. It was a little 135-seat room Mm -hmm. in May of 1972. Now, this little room was part of a huge, huge nightclub building that had been called Ciro's back during the heyday of Hollywood. All the movie stars came. And it had a 450-seat main room and a 100-seat belly room upstairs. But Mitzi had subleased her and Sammy this little 135-seat room in May of 72. That's really important because as I was just talking to uh, Liz Stone, our tremendous comedian here tonight, the 70s was the time of the three network television, okay? And in May of 72, it so happens that's the month and the year Johnny Carson moved The Tonight Show to Los Angeles from New York. And suddenly, this entire sub-generation of comedians that had developed in New York in the late 60s had to come out to Los Angeles. And there there was the comedy store waiting for them. And you had all these brilliant comics that were disciples of Robert Klein, really, and and David Steinberg. They were disciples of these guys. And uh, they were right there and ready, okay? Mm -hmm. So you had all these ready comics from New York you had sitcom stars like uh, Red Fox and uh, Welcome Back Cotter, Gabe Kaplan, were established. Uh, and uh, Rodney Dangerfield would always drop by. So they got off to a running start in 72. It was hot right away. Yeah. I didn't get there till 76. But the first generation of them, starting in 76, 77, were doing The Tonight Show. And The Tonight Show was the golden door to success. Oh, yeah. And and what were you doing? Uh, had, had had you been doing comedy elsewhere up before 76? Like, well, what, what was your timeline I was a campus star at the University of Oklahoma. Okay. Okay. Uh, in two or three different ways. I emceed all the campus shows. But more importantly, I had a political humor column of jokes in the school newspaper, in the Oklahoma Daily. And it was a 
it was a 25,000 circulation newspaper. Everybody on campus read it. I had my picture three inches by two inches in the paper for eight semesters next to uh, my column. And I parlayed that into a campus show at a bar on Campus Corner in Norman called Trivia Night, where I gave out free pictures of beer for answers to trivia questions over the PA system and punchlines to jokes. So I, that's why it took me five and a half years to graduate from OU, because I was having such a good time. Yeah, yeah. yeah I was the social chairman at the ATO house planning all the parties. And, uh, and as long as my classes were in the afternoon, we were fine. <laughs> but... Uh, uh, I majored in Coors. <laughs> I had a 3.2. <laughs> due to my high intellect, I was allowed to graduate after only three terms. Nixon, Ford, and Carter. <laughs> so anyway, I, I had a ball. And so uh, yeah, one you've night- always we're, been, we're, You've we're, always been a partier. Well, but one night, I didn't know if I was going to New York or LA, but one night we're sitting in the ATO house, fraternity house living room, where ATOs were sitting around watching Johnny Carson- and Sammy Davis was the guest. And he said, uh, Johnny, I saw this young comedian at this new place called the Comedy Store. I want to bring him out and, and have him perform. Johnny said, fine. This guy came out. It was Freddie Prinze. Mm. He just blew up the room there in Burbank at NBC. And the next thing you know, he had his own sitcom. And that's pretty much the way it went with everybody. You would kill on The Tonight Show. And then you would, as I was just telling Liz Stone, you graduate to either your network deal or your movie deal, or you decide to keep doing talk shows until you get to host one. Right. I mean, pretty much the three avenues. And, uh, and so when I got there in 76, it was a big, big year because the, the height of the baby boom was the year I was born. And we were all getting out of college that year and the year before. Okay. And so we had a huge pledge class of, of comics that auditioned for Mitzi Shore in 1976. And what was the audition process like back then? Because it's kind of, it's changed quite a bit over the years for you know the different talent coordinators and stuff like that. What was your Mitzi, audition Mitzi like for Mitzi? terrified everybody. Yeah. There were, there were comics that were doing The Tonight Show that were nervous when she was in the room. But she had so much power. Mm -hmm. She determined whether or not you were going to have a career or not. Yeah, that's how powerful she was. And did you ever see anybody that she drastically changed her mind on, like that she was very cold? Oh on? yes, absolutely. Yeah, Gary Shanley. Really? Yeah. Uh, she treated him like a little bitch. Okay, <laughs> for about four or five years, she made him from seventy four to seventy nine. She made him do uh, audition, 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 audition. And what it did was it forced him to become a successful TV uh, scriptwriter for sitcoms yeah. in that time. And he just got better and better and better. And so by the time she finally relented and made him a regular, he was ready for The Tonight Show. And he blew it out. And the next thing you know, he was guest hosting. you know, And he was on his way. But that's, but that's that was a prime example. And later on, she claimed that she was making him sweat on purpose to make him better. And she did that to a few people too. Mm -hmm. yeah. okay. But what Mitzi did was, because we had the comedy store Westwood as well as the Sunset, she, I was telling this to Liz Stone earlier, the Westwood comedy store was a 235 seat room that she would send us young baby boomers over. She would 
she would like in about two months she approved me, Robin Williams, Michael Keaton, Marshall Warfield, Arsenio, uh, Howie Mandel, uh, Bob Saget, uh, Ollie Joe Prater, Vic Dunlop, uh, Bill Kirkenbauer. I mean, a tremendous pledge class, class. in '76. Yeah. And Mike Binder would come along a little later that year, but she would send us over to Westwood. Mm-hmm. And as I was talking earlier to Liz, the Westwood Comedy Store had a beer and wine license, which is important because I meant four food items, beer and wine license. Mitzi did not have to buy a liquor license. Now, what this meant, this is why you would have been great back there, is that 18-year-olds could get in. Uh, it was just beer and wine. Okay. It's like a restaurant. Right. That's what it is, a restaurant. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Play sure. along, everybody. Uh-huh, yeah. And so it became the hip nightclub, not only for young baby boomers living on the west side, but also USC, UCLA, oh, Taft High School, El Camino High School, Beverly High School, Uni High School, the whole west side of Los Angeles. Yeah. That was the place. And Mitzi's intention was for us to go over to Westwood, you know, and become one day ready for sunset. Mm-hmm. And I was just telling Liz, after three years at Westwood, we were ready for the Tonight Show before we were ready for Sunset. And the, the Westwood Comedy Store was a 235-seater, brick walls. It's where Jim Carrey developed, where Louis Anderson developed, uh, and uh, Roseanne would come in there and blow the roof off. Sam Kinison developed there. He was pretty developed in Houston, but he got his following at Westwood. Real, oh, just uh, that young cult following yeah, exactly. that was like ready to yeah, exactly. you know, follow him to yeah. the end of the earth. Yeah, yeah. He didn't have to deal with a bunch of appalled adults at sunset. He had young people at Westwood. They, the rebels are ready exactly. to you know, revolt against everything that's going exactly. on. Yeah, yeah. And the same place, in the same way, Andrew Dice Clay took off at Westwood. Okay. Because he would have appalled all the politically correct people in, on the sunset strip. Sure, sure. But Westwood, hey, free speech. Anything goes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so... I forgot to mention, uh, Dice was in our pledge class too. So, uh, and and you know he he wound up building up concerts. I mean, theaters, yeah. field houses, one of the biggest of all time. Yeah. And so, uh, we were really in a golden age. We really were. And uh, yeah, you just saying just your class, like you know, every for anybody who's listening. Uh, he's talking about classes very much like high school where the, the same people who are on the same lineups as you all the time that are going up around you, that's like your class of comedians yeah. or who you started with. Exactly. Yeah. And the, and somebody told me something back then that turned out to be true. He said, your peers, okay, right, will get you a lot more work than any agent ever will. I a thousand percent agree with <laughs> yeah. that. I, I've, the stuff that I've gotten as far as like even TV bookings and, and different things like that, or, or like the little movie stuff I've done here and there, it's from referrals from comedians yeah. who saw me and know me. And they're like, I think Jeremiah would be good for this. And they vouch for me because they've seen me perform for years. And, and that's well, now, when goes, you came up though, when you came up, Mitzi was in decline and, and I only met Mitzi once. Okay. Yeah. Because she, but you, you really met her through osmosis through Tommy Yes. the talent coordinator, because she thoroughly trained Tommy to look at comics like she did. Mm-hmm. And he would last until 2013, and by the way, that time you were on your way. Right. Yeah. Um, what was I, it like uh, auditioning for Tommy? Well, what was strange is he never passed me before what? he What? He never passed me before he left. So I had to... I was, like, he was telling me for, like, a year or two that I was going to be next on 
his passing list. You and, and Erica Rhodes. Yeah. The same thing. He there's was a, just about to pass her. There's a there's a couple comics uh, that he was he was telling, and uh, I had to re-showcase for Adam Egit, uh, and I didn't get until my third showcase. And the way that the showcases work now, there is a, a year between the showcases. Really? Yeah. So so you went out on the road and became a monster act and came back and yeah. were forced to do, what, I was five forced, minutes? Yeah, uh, for the audition, it was like an eight-minute set or something like that. And and yeah. you were able to kill on the road with for 30 minutes. I oh, mean, easily, yeah. easily. Yeah, no, it was it was one of those things where because I got turned down, I was like, okay. That's the Shanley okay. treatment. Yeah, yeah. So the third you and time, <laughs> I had such an undeniable set that yeah. it like I, I, yeah. he had to pass me. Yeah, I'm still waiting for Erica Rhodes to come back in because she was really good she's too. Great. She's and a great beautiful. joke writer too. And yeah, uh, but she's probably making too much money on the road to bother. Yeah, I, I'll run into her uh, in New York and stuff like that, and yeah. we'll hang out in, in New York. She's great. Yeah. Yeah. Who would you say was in your class, your pledge class? Um, it would have. So I was kind of in between a couple uh, of the classes, but uh, some of the people who got passed around me were uh, like Jessica Michelle Singleton, uh, Sandra Yocalano. Um, uh, the class, like, that was kind of like uh, how I'm in between. It's like. Jamar Neighbors, Willie Hunter, Jade Catapretta, um, Gerard Carmichael. Yeah. Um, a lot of uh, of those guys were like kind of the class above me. Uh, yeah. that... Gerard making a lot of noise coming in. Oh, yeah. yeah. He was one of those comics who immediately uh, comics would come in to watch yeah. him because yeah. he just had that, you know, yeah. that quality. He had him. me open for him on his HBO special. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> and I tried to tone down my southern accent the best I could. <laughs> Because, <laughs> you know, he drew a, a great crowd. Oh, know? yeah, absolutely. But Spike Lee in the back, I didn't fool him. <laughs> yeah, right, right, yeah, yeah. I said, hi, Spike, I'm Argus Hamilton. I know who you are. <laughs> Come on, I gave jokes to Paul Mooney. Be nice to Yeah, him. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I mean, that's what's so cool about uh, someone like you who's really been there and you really know the history of the comedy store you've seen so many comics come and go that were the classes after you and you've been like a rock at the comedy store for so many years where it's all it's always cool for for me to see your name on the lineups because i'm like oh it's gonna be a good show in argus on it uh, thanks well uh i was as i was talking earlier as i said to liz it was a graduated uh form of development back then it was very structured mm -hmm. and you either got your tv deal you got your movie deal or you decide to hang in there till you got your talk show yeah right? okay and i'd never in my life decided wanted to be anything but a talk show host okay and as soon as i started exploding on the tonight show i did a bunch of them and just blew the roof off however it's a small town <laughs> And they knew, the whole town knew, and, and they would spread it at the improv. Well, Argus is funny. Too bad he's a cocaine addict alcoholic. <laughs> and, you know, that that doesn't help you, you know, with the NBC brass. Sure. Johnny may love you, but NBC knows about you too. As far as moving the next chess yeah, pieces yeah, exactly. around and stuff like that. Yeah. And so I stalled around until Leno and Letterman cornered the who was going to host, you know, the two network yeah. talk show. They cornered it. And so by that time, I, I was two or three years sober, but I couldn't get in NBC. So I went over to Fox, did that late night talk show that Arsenio had and was leaving. I blew the roof off that one. And then the, uh, the then owner of Fox uh, 
said, uh, well, we'd give it to Argus, but he reminds me too much of Johnny. Oh, really? Yeah. And I mean, why would you want somebody that reminds you of Johnny who's held service for 30 years? I mean, why, why yeah. would you want someone like that? <laughs> so anyway. Yeah, it's crazy. So I, I, successful I, I took it like it a man works, and, yeah. uh, and I, I wound up syndicating a bunch of jokes every day in the newspapers mm -hmm. every day, five days a week, 13 jokes a day. And it's in newspapers all over the country. And in the nineties, that got me a lot of banquets. A lot of banquet gigs. Oh yeah, I bet. And then, and then uh, uh, I decided to outweigh everybody, and so now uh, I've got a showrunner. I've got the comedy store behind me, and we're pitching a talk show that uh, I had at the comedy store called Argus Hamilton's Comedy Store Tonight. Oh yeah, you ha you had me on for an That's episode, right. which is yeah, this is very we're fun. pitching that to Big Fox in about a month. Awesome, so, because there's a hole there. And since I'm a centrist comedian, I'd be the only centrist comedian uh, hosting a late night talk show. Right. And I'd have plenty of opportunity to plug it uh, with appearances on Fox News since it's the parent company. Right. Fox. So. Uh, so we got plans to do it. I've got a great showrunner, a former partner at APA and then Peter Shore, the comedy store. So, yeah, we're going for it. Well, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. But I love joking about the news. I love pe making people laugh and say, you know, that, that's a fair joke. Like people say, right. that's yeah, fair. Where on both sides, wherever you land politically or whatever your viewpoints are, is like, hey, he's hitting it from both sides. It's exactly. funny. It's so just I, funny. I don't it's have funny. a dog in this fight. I'm a royalist. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> people laugh and think I'm kidding. Yeah. <laughs> but... I say this, I say, my line of Hamilton's, we lost the English Civil War, we lost the American Revolution, we lost the American Civil War, and the war on drugs, I fought for Columbia. <laughs> and so, um, so you know, your little democracy here, have fun with it. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I tease it from a distance. Sure, sure. Yeah, uh, I, I got to ask you um, uh, about just more stories about the store, because... Uh, it, it's it's truly fascinating to me just to see like the the different changes over the years and and stuff like that of of people coming and going um and well and you know I know we got to wrap up here in a little bit because uh, we have another show to do yeah I can wait <laughs> I know right um but uh when you're at the comedy store and you're coming up um who were your guys who who you were like these are my favorite guys to watch from the back of the room oh uh, no doubt about it Paul Mooney. Yeah, Paul Mooney. He was uh, the great black descendant spiritually and comedically from Dick Gregory. Mm -hmm. These were serious black comics, yeah. really funny stuff. And just at a crucial time, uh, Dick Gregory was great in the 60s when, when civil rights was really roiling. And then Paul Mooney would benefit in the 70s because that was the decade of real free speech as witnessed by Blazing Saddles, uh, Red Fox, uh, the original cast of Saturday Night Live. Mm -hmm. I mean, Animal House. This was the, these are all National Lampoon people, the National Lampoon magazine in the early 70s. Really free speech. And Mooney rode that. And uh, I would say, you know, and he helped pull Richard Pryor out of the ditch when Richard uh, cracked up on stage in Las Vegas doing cute little song impressions and stuff. It's not Richard at all. Mm -hmm. And it finally got to Richard. Mooney picked him up by the bootstraps and, and turned him into what I always call Dark Twain. 
That's who Dark Richard Twain. Pryor was. Dark okay. Twain. And uh, Red Fox would let them write scripts and stuff like this. But all the time, Mooney was great. He was the one. And we would close the Westwood Comedy Store like at 1 o'clock mm -hmm. and race over to Sunset, you know, by about 10 after 1, just to catch Paul Mooney because he would always close the show in the original room. Okay. And he was magnificent. So he was... So they always call like it the Kennison spot at the comedy That's store. That's it. Was he... Ken Kennison inherited that spot. He inherited it from Mooney. From Mooney. Wow, I never knew that. Yeah, because Mooney would, would go on to great things sure. on the road and stuff. And then but, the, that, that slot opens up. The slot opened it up, and it, it was Kennison's. I think Eddie Griffin would try to go on after that, but, you know. Yeah. But, and he, had the, he, had, he certainly had the, the material, mm -hmm. but uh, he didn't catch on like Kennison or and he wasn't revered like Mooney was. Right. Yeah. Uh, who who would you say uh, for you was uh, your least person to follow, least favorite person to follow, or your like most difficult? Would oh, you say? there's no doubt about it. Uh, sometimes, uh, sometimes over at Westwood, the acts wouldn't show up, and so we doormen who, if we weren't emceeing that show. Let's say I was emceeing the first show, but not the second. Yeah. The act doesn't show up after Gallagher or Lenny Schultz. You're having to follow smashed watermelons or, or just food all over the stage. <laughs> With where are you from? I'm from Oklahoma. Our pedestrian nice flash mosey and don't mosey. <laughs> Come on. Right. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, can, you can con us with that line with, at 9 o'clock, Argus. Come on. I had to do one gig uh, where I had to follow fireworks on the 4th of July. Morning. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> that was, I was like, I'm literally following fireworks. Yeah. Everybody looking up at the sky, yay, taking their pictures, celebrating <laughs> the holiday. And I'm like, hey, guys, are you ready for some comedy? And then yeah. I, I, I did that, and then I brought up Jeff Ross. It was at a county fair. <laughs> Good. Yeah. Yeah, that was that was an interesting I one. Love, my favorite comic is Bill Burr right now. You know? He's amazing. And somebody finally showed me that video of him screaming at Versus that Philadelphia Philly. crowd. That had to have been a, a Promethean moment for me. It's one of the things that set off his career, like like that really like put him into the lore that you're talking about. Like, yeah, have yeah. you seen this Bill Burr video? Like that kind of thing where where people started revering him, like looking at him in a different way. He was, he was already like so funny and and established at that point, but like and and you know he was defending you know the, the story behind that. No, he was going after the crowd because they weren't being respectful to Dom Irera who oh. had gone on. Yeah. So he was like, he, he was, because everybody loves Dom and yeah. Dom's a legend. Everybody loves everybody Dom. Everybody loves Dom. And they're yeah. like, he's like, you're going to do that to him? Like, so he went off uh, on that Philly crowd. And the next thing you know, because uh, Mike Binder was telling me this, he is now headlining at, uh, at the Royal Albert in London. Yeah. At, just these huge venues. And then he filled up Fenway Park. He's a Boston comic who filled up Fenway Park. What a what a dream for a little Boston kid yeah. to come to fruition. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. And you don't have to share the stage with eight other guys, you know? Yeah. It's just you. It's just you. No Red Sox. It's wild. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I'll ask you a couple more questions and then uh yeah, we're we're nearing our showtime. But um 
Uh, so I got to ask you about uh, a couple of uh, uh, you you ran into and you've worked with a couple of my favorite comedians who I grew up on uh, that are big influences on me. Can you share any um, uh, Jim Carrey stories that you may have had? Yeah. Uh, Jim arrived from Toronto in 82. Mm-hmm. OK. And I was sitting near Mitzi next to Mitzi when uh, he went on stage on Monday night. And yeah, Howie Mandel or somebody had told Mitzi, give this guy a full set. You know, this guy's special. Yeah. And she said, okay, you know. And so he went up there and did this perfect act of impressions. Just perfect act. It just destroyed the crowd. Destroyed the crowd. Mitzi made him an absolute regular right away. Mm-hmm. So with this act of perfect little impressions, he, uh, the biggest management firm in town, Rollins and Joffe, uh, took him on and they gave him this silly little sitcom with no audience uh, based on his ability to do cute little impressions and it was failed and he, he, he was stuck with this cute little act that always killed there's always perfect little impressions but it wasn't him yeah so he talked to Mitzi about it and Mitzi said hey I've got an idea for you All right uh I'm going to put you on with Damon Wayne's late at night at the show. You're either going to follow Damon or Damon's going to follow you. I want you to just go up there and be yourself. Okay? Don't worry. I'm going to give you, you'll be up every night. Just be yourself up there. And suddenly, next to Damon up there, he started turning into the monster stand-up comic he became. A monster. Just a combination of wit, uh, brilliant impressions, energy, Joy, youth, looks. I mean, he just had it all. Okay. And the next thing you know, the Waynes brothers get a network deal in living color. He's the designated white boy. And off we go. Yeah. You know, and uh, I think he, there was a story that he, you know, his father died. He, he, he put a check for a million dollars in his casket. Uh, yeah, he he had uh, he wrote himself a check for I think it was six million or something like that. Yeah, like yeah, and then and and <laughs> his and father had been year, a street performer in, yeah. in Toronto or something. Yeah, at the subway. And then it came to fruition, and uh, when he did uh, all he did like Ace Ventura, Dumb and Dumber, and The Mask all within a year, and he yeah, made that yeah. money all within and, that and, year. It's and crazy. you know the and Generation X got an idea of what. The country must have been like when Jerry Lewis first took off because it was that same kind yeah, of yeah, the same kind of energy and, and the physicality yeah. and yeah, absolutely. and wit, you know too. Yeah, yeah, he had it he all. Had, his his special and a lot of people are unfamiliar with it, but he has a a half hour special that I believe he filmed in Canada. It's called Jim Carrey's Unnatural Act. It's my yeah. favorite special. I love well, it. Uh, Mitzi had both him and Paul Rodriguez on our very first show at the Comedy Store Dunes Hotel mm-hmm. in 1984. We opened in April. And we were there for eight years. But but Jim was already hot then, and so was uh, Rodriguez. And they agreed to do the opening night. You know, yeah. And uh, took off from there. But Mitzi adored him. Adored him. That's awesome. Um, do you have any uh, Robin Williams uh, encounters or stories that come to mind when you hear the name Robin Williams? Well, Robin and I were the same pledge class. I love that. We did the new uh, Laugh-In show together in the fall of 77. Uh People think Mork and Mindy made him. George Slaughter, the producer, made him. The guy who, the famous, he's the biggest guy in Beverly Hills. 
uh, tremendous rich, and he had executive produced Laugh-In, Real People. But in the fall of 77, he'd gotten a network deal to bring back Laugh-In. And so George came to the comedy store to cast it. Uh, and he came into the door with his writer, Digby Wolf from England. And uh, I'd, I was even seeing the show, but also greeting at the door. I said, George Sauter, you're here. He said, this is my writer, Digby Wolf. I said, oh, you're from England? He said, yes. I said, what political party are you? And he said, well, I'm, I'm a liberal. I said, they haven't had a prime minister since David Lloyd George. And Digby said to George, hire this man as a writer, okay? Because this, this young man reads, and anyone who can read can write. <laughs> Next thing I know, I'm making $1,200 a week in 1977 oh, yeah. with a cocaine habit. <laughs> oh, man. You talk about, let's saddle up and yeah, run. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and so uh, he came in to see Robin. And, and Robin had these dirty fingernails, a cowboy hat, hair coming out. And Robin had a tremendously funny act. It was filthy full of four impressions, a, a redneck uh, guitar player, two gay guys doing Shakespeare, a Nadia Comaneci impression, and I forget the fourth thing he did, but he just brought down the house. Bill Kirkenbauer had been the thunder boomer at Westwood till Robin arrived in, 70, in September, and then Robin just destroyed. And uh, Mitzi immediately sent him down to the comedy store La Jolla, you know, to, to and uh, he was with Ronnie Kenny and uh, everybody knew right away he should do the Tonight Show, but he went on the on the beach walk on Pacific Beach with Ronnie. They tried to come up with six clean minutes up for him, and he couldn't do it. Really? So, so he he would do these little local talk shows while uh, while going on uh, uh, while waiting to go on that fall on Lapian. Well, stupid NBC puts all this talent. I I, I do the news on the show. Robin was was the star and idiot NBC put it up against Monday Night Football yeah how are you supposed to succeed what, against the, what are you doing this, yeah. this had Friday night 10 o'clock written all over it right and no NBC and puts it up what year was this uh, fall of 77 so this was already when it's proven that Saturday Night Live is working. It's a hit show. It's on in the late night on exactly. Saturday. And and they're trying to put yeah. it on a Monday. And all, yeah. all the baby boomers are staying up late on Friday night watching Don Kirshner's rock concert. Mm -hmm. When you have a comedian on that, everybody knows where it's at. Yeah. Okay. It gets stupider. Okay. So laughing, all this talent, NBC cancels it after six weeks. Yeah. And guess what they replace it with? Huh. The Richard Pryor specials. And Richard Pryor and Paul Mooney cast Robin Williams and me and about Marshall Warfield, about six or seven others of us. And we're all these sketch players on the Richard Pryor specials. And Richard has these immortal black uh, artists from the 1940s, Billy Eckstein. He was the black Sinatra. Yeah. And, and I'm telling you, it is fantastic. These sketches that we do, seven of them, just tremendous against Monday Night Football. Right. <laughs> that show could have run 10 years on Friday night at 10 o'clock. And NBC, the idiots, you know, just put it on against Monday Night Football. Do you do you have access to any of those old sketches anymore? Yeah, or yeah any you, can, you can Google them. Yeah? Yeah. Just Google, uh, you Google um, Richard Pryor and Robin Williams, uh, NBC 
uh, Robin, uh, Richard Pryor specials. Okay. Sketches from Richard Pryor specials. Right. And you see Robin Williams playing Atticus Finch in To Kill a Mockingbird. Right. And uh, you see you see me getting a big laugh uh, where Richard Pryor just brings down the house with this sketch where he plays the first black president. And it's such a crazy idea in 1977. People are laughing before he opens his mouth. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and he's and Richard's taking questions for this, that, and the other, and uh, and I just stand up. I say to uh, Buford uh, Buford Johnson from the Mississippi Clarion. He said, "Sit down," <laughs> and all the places went wild. <laughs> I get this long, great take to sit down. But Monday Night Football, they they covered all thirteen. Weeks of Monday Night Football, right? Wasting the most talent NBC ever flushed down the toilet. Yeah, that's so wild. But, but luck always comes if you got talent. And the next thing you know, uh, Gary Marshall, who's riding high with the biggest hit on TV, Happy Days, they decide to have a somebody coming in from outer space. You know, because that's a big deal in the 1950s, outer space. Sure. You know, all these Mars attacks movies. So they, they bring in a guy from outer space and uh, Gary comes in and sees Robin. And then Gary asks his young daughter, like six or seven years old, what would it be a good name? She said, Mork. And a six-year-old daughter of Gary Marshall named Mork. And next thing you know, Robin's making 50000 a week with a cocaine habit. <laughs> it all has a happy ending. <laughs> sure. I'm sure those parties were pretty crazy. Oh, <laughs> oh gosh and of course i'd go to rehab every november from 81 to 86 yeah i'd stay sober for nine months okay and then football season would arrive <laughs> and it's time to refight the civil war <laughs> and then finally uh finally in november of 86 i got well for good when i was given no choice mm-hmm well, Argus, uh, I mean, we could literally talk for hours about like your life and your history and your influence, like in the comedy scene and with the comedy store. But uh, you're literally about to go on stage in about ten minutes from now, so I want you to be able to collect your thoughts for a moment. But uh, what per- I'd like, what I'd like your viewers to know is, okay, yeah, I want you to come see this guy because this guy's a genius. You are a genius up there, and I, I saw it from the very start. You, you, you know, you've got that same. Uh, Robin thing going with you. I mean, you really have it. And I want you all to see him whenever you can. If you're on the road or if you're in L.A., you can come see both of us. Yeah, come see us at the Comedy Store. That's, that's high praise, Argus. I really appreciate it. Well, I, that. I mean it, man. You had me with that, that woman having sex after the singing. At <laughs> the, the night of karaoke. Karaoke. <laughs> oh, God, you, you've got to make, yell karaoke when he's on stage. Make him do it. I'll have to do that. I'll have to do that. I'll have to bring that back for you some night. <laughs> All right. <laughs> yeah. God, it's funny. Oh. And trust me, I'm a snob. That's funny. All right. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you can follow Argus on social media. Uh, he puts out new jokes all the time and uh he writes for publications across the country and come see us at the comedy store performing together on the the lineups uh in the main room or the original room of the comedy store and uh love you brother thank you so much for coming Thanks on the for podcast having me, and i want to apologize to the tropicana for welcoming everybody to the dunes on monday night <laughs> for sure you welcomed everybody to the dunes and harry was back here with me harry basil another another comedy legend of the state he goes he goes did argus just 
called the dunes yeah oh, <laughs> next thing you know he's taste he's texting joe napote telling on me yeah yeah, yeah. Oh, we got an argus story <laughs> all right thanks a lot argus thank you very much i appreciate it appreciate you brother. you're great